Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Java Junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to do metabolic research, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is an author, an associate professor at Brigham Young University, also known as BYU, and a metabolic scientist who researches insulin resistance, which he believes is the root cause of many chronic illnesses like cancer, Alzheimer's, and type 2 diabetes. But before I introduce you to Dr. Benjamin Bickman, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Benjamin Bickman, an associate professor of physiology and developmental biology at BYU. Dr. Bickman is a renowned metabolic research scientist who has contributed to dozens of academic journals, as well as presenting at numerous professional talks, focusing on insulin resistance and how the body can prevent chronic illnesses. In 2020, he co-founded Insulin HQ, which is a coaching service aimed at reversing type 2 diabetes and helping those with insulin resistance to get healthy. And in July 2020, he published his first book entitled Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Diseases and How to Fight It. Actually, I think it's of most chronic disease and how to fight it, which dives deep into why insulin resistance is so prevalent and why it matters. Dr. Bickman, Ben, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm ready to go. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I am delighted to have you. And I know you're a Mormon, which means you (laughs) don't drink coffee. But how do you feel about coffee and the way that it affects our insulin levels and our metabolism? Is it a good thing or not? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. I would say it's a neutral thing because there are some things that would that we would say are beneficial and some things we would say are not. 
people commonly only look at coffee through the lens of the brain and the central nervous system effects. And it's not the immediate stimulant a lot of people think. In fact, when you studies that have tracked the perception of energy in someone before and after coffee or with or without a placebo, it's a very modest, if any, thing. So most of the perk that someone gets from it is going to be just because of the habit and they, they enjoy this experience. And the caffeine is an addictive drug. And I don't mean to say that in some illicit terrible way, but it is a chemical that we become very well adapted to, which drives us to want more. Now, as a metabolic scientist, I look more at uh, outside the brain. I'm interested in what caffeine does to fat cells, which many would, people would say is a good thing. And that is the caffeine induces or activates lipolysis or the breakdown of fat. Caffeine wants the body to start moving or mobilizing the energy that it has stored, most especially in fat cells. Now, on the flip side, Caffeine does increase stress hormones and can exacerbate anxiety in people who are prone to anxiety. And that's likely, at least partly, a result of these stress hormones that when we drink caffeine or consume caffeine, we have an increase. It's, it's acute. This is just a few hours. So it's not like there's some chronic problem from this, but we have an increase in the prototypical stress hormones, namely cortisol and epinephrine. The epinephrine increase is partly why we have the increased lipolysis because epinephrine activates the burning of fat. But on the flip side, those two hormones also cause insulin resistance. And so insulin sensitivity or the ability of the hormone insulin to work in the body will drop by about 20% in the average person for a few hours. And then the caffeine clears and then the insulin sensitivity, well, the hormones clear, the stress hormones, and then things go back to normal. So there, there are trade-offs, and I don't mean to take one side or the other of this, and I'm certainly not at all antagonistic to caffeine in general. I have a personal, for lack of a better word, addiction, but a love for Diet Dr. Pepper. But I know, I sense that addiction in myself and, and really just try to control it to only allow myself to have a couple a week or, you know, or, or similar. So I don't, I'm not speaking evil of caffeine in general. There are good things that seem metabolically beneficial. There are aspects that are metabolically negative. And then they, you know, we just have to weigh the pros and cons. Well, it's nice to know that you're human, Ben. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, my, my wife would have just laughed in your face. Andrew. Yes, I am. Well, you know, we're all human. I think that's just the reality. Yep. So before we get into what you do, as a metabolic research scientist, as a cell biologist, I thought we might kick things off by giving our listeners a quick 101 on what insulin is and what insulin resistance means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great place to start. So insulin is a hormone that we make from our pancreas. The pancreas is a little gland that's just tucked underneath our stomachs. And everyone is making insulin all the time unless you are a type 1 diabetic. And type 1 diabetes, that's a disease of the destruction of those insulin producing cells. And so that's a person who has to take insulin by needle injection. And you need insulin you will die without it. Insulin affects so many aspects of honestly, literally, and I don't use that word liberally the way the kids do these days. Insulin affects literally every single cell in the body. And so it's, it's not hard to see why it is so essential. Now, the, the, the most famous action of insulin is to control glucose levels. That when we eat something starchy or sugary, our blood glucose, or sometimes called blood sugar, will go up a lot. 
that is lethal. It will literally kill us if it stays too high. And so insulin swoops in to save the day by pushing the glucose into cells of the body, most especially our muscle cells and our fat cells. And having pushed the glucose from the blood, the blood glucose levels drop. Insulin, having done one of its main jobs, also drops. And then we go back to the state we were in before. But insulin affects countless other processes that have nothing to do with glucose. And that's where it becomes relevant in the context of insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is in the most obvious definition where a state in which insulin isn't working as well as it did before at some cells of the body. Now, I'd mentioned the muscle cells. Muscle is the main consumer of glucose. When glucose levels go up in the blood, it's mostly the muscle that takes that in because insulin pushes it in. Well, when the muscles become insulin resistant, now insulin's trying to shove the glucose into those muscles, but the muscles don't respond. And so the glucose levels stay high. And now the high glucose levels starts to basically turn the person into a type 2 diabetic. Now, however, some of the body's cells respond as well to insulin as they ever did. And one example of this is a certain type of cell in ovaries in women called the theca cells. And the theca cells are the cells that produce estrogens for her body. And a normal ovulatory cycle in a woman requires a huge increase in estrogen levels in order to ovulate. But if you don't have that big increase in estrogens, you have no ovulation. And insulin always inhibits that production of estrogens. And so that becomes relevant in the second aspect of insulin resistance, which is that blood insulin levels are chronically elevated. Now, that doesn't matter so much to the muscle because the muscle is already resistant to insulin, but it matters very much to similar cells like the theca cells of the ovaries that are producing estrogens because that means that higher and higher amounts of insulin are inhibiting the production of estrogens more and more thereby preventing ovulation. And now the woman has polycystic ovary syndrome, which is almost totally a disease of insulin resistance, but not because the ovaries are insulin resistant, but because in the state of insulin resistance, blood insulin levels are much higher than they used to be. So that's insulin resistance. That was a long-winded way of defining it with some examples, but insulin resistance is one, insulin isn't working as well as it did before in some cells, and two, insulin levels are much higher in the blood than they used to be. Okay. Wow. That was a super thorough response. Thank you. Just quickly, I realize you mentioned both type 2 diabetes Mm -hmm. and polycystic ovaries. But for our listeners, for university students, let alone those who are older, who are listening right now, why should they care if they have insulin resistance or if they might become insulin resistant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the easiest way to start this is with the people on the older end of the age spectrum, which is every disease you're afraid of is essentially going to be impacted, if not totally caused by insulin resistance. And this encompasses a very broad range. We just published a paper looking at how in Alzheimer's disease, the brain fundamentally can't use glucose very well because it's becoming insulin resistant. That's what connects insulin resistance to Alzheimer's disease. So that is one of the most terrifying diseases that everyone has. So that's one where your insulin resistance is going to make it much more likely that you'll have Alzheimer's. Insulin resistance makes it much more likely that you will get breast or prostate cancer. And also hypertension and heart disease, fatty liver disease. These are all related and and, and very diseases of concern to us as we age. Now, on the younger end, to these seemingly immortal and bulletproof 20-year-olds, I would say a few things. One, um, the bill always comes due. 
that these habits that you're engaging in now, while you seemingly can stay effortlessly lean, it will always catch up. I've been a professor now for 10 years. And as I see students coming back to say hello, I am amazed at how much weight they've gained and how much less healthy they are. So the bill always comes due. These habits of, you know, never ending cereal and, and ice cream and, and junk, the bill comes due. So it seems like you're metabolically bulletproof now, but you aren't and it will catch up to you. But even still, there are reports that in people, this was a study in young women, actually, as young as their 20s, if they have insulin resistance, you can detect mild cognitive impairment. While you are learning and spending a horrific amount of money or your parents' money getting a degree, hopefully in something that matters, you need your brain to be working well. That is your moneymaker. That is your primary investment at the moment. You need it to be working at its best. And if you are insulin resistant and you're, or you're getting there and it's more subtle than you think, you are hurting your brain's ability to learn and, and understand concepts. Not to mention, in young women, you will be driving infertility, not that you maybe care yet in your early 20s. In young men, you will be driving erectile dysfunction, or, or rather erectile dysfunction is considered one of the earliest symptoms or manifestations of insulin resistance. And these things will matter. Again, maybe you're not thinking about fertility yet. I suspect you will soon. Regardless, PCOS is a very uncomfortable situation that has beyond fertility. It's, it's a painful thing. And of course, erectile dysfunction in a man, that problem speaks for itself. So without talking about food groups, what are the substances that cause insulin resistance? Yeah. What are they at their most base form? Yep. Yep. So I think there are three primary causes of insulin resistance and only one of them has to do with food. And I'll end with that one. And it's one I've already touched on a bit. So the other two, um, and I end with the last, um, I'm teasing it because that's the one you can control the best. The first two are harder to control and that is stress and inflammation. And, and those are words that are so commonly thrown around these days. Those are almost pop culture words that, uh, that have almost transcended any meaning. And so when I say these words, I'm going to be very, very precise. So inflammation, when I say that, I mean that there's an actual increase in the circulation of hormones or proteins that increase if inflammatory reactions within cells of the body. And that can come from things like autoimmune disorders or food sensitivities, where if someone has an autoimmune disease, like rheumatoid arthritis or even juvenile onset rheumatoid arthritis that some of these students might have. When the autoimmunity is active and, and the body is, has an enhanced immune or inflammatory state, insulin resistance goes up. And then when the body has less autoimmune activity, insulin sensitivity or gets better or insulin resistance resolves somewhat. So inflammation is a key cause of insulin resistance. Stress is a key cause. And that is because of the stress hormones, epinephrine and cortisol. Those are the poster child, the prototypical stress hormones. They both cause insulin resistance through distinct mechanisms. So if you are stressed, you will have more insulin resistant. Now, that doesn't just mean an emotional stress. And I know students have a lot of that, but it's also a physical stress, like you're exercising too much or you're sleeping too little. And I know that latter in particular can plague students, if not most of us. But also, I very much am empathetic to the emotional duress that students experience. I vividly remember, you know, in my early 20s as a student, 
the the kind of early I call it an early life crisis that I experienced nearing the end of a degree, my bachelor's degree, and then wondering what the hell am I going to do with this degree? And I had just gotten married, and I was anticipating this life as a family man, and I thought, what I I, I have there are going to be demands of me as I as my wife and I at the time had to, or even fiance we were kind of very traditional and that I would be the breadwinner and she would be the homemaker. And I, I, that the weight of that future responsibility really settled on my shoulders. So I'm very empathetic and genuine. When I mention that students experience stress, that's a stressful time of life. When you're trying to discover who you are, you are in your decade of decision where the most important choices of your life will be made in that window of time from around like 20, 16 to 26 who you're going to marry, what you're going to study like as a job. Those are kind of, and, and a few others, uh, what to do, starting a family, big decisions, stressful time. So another cause of insulin resistance. And the last one, the one that you can control the best because it's hard to just control inflammation. It's hard to control stress. And that is insulin levels themselves. And now it comes to food. If someone is living a life that is constantly pushing their insulin levels up, the body will start to become resistant to that insulin. And that is reflective of a fundamental biological principle, which is too much of a stimulus results in a resistant to that stimulus. For example, something as benign as coffee. The first time a person drinks coffee, they have a remarkable response to it. And there are diminishing returns. Now they need more. And what used to be one cup of coffee would satisfy them. Now it's three. And that is, and I'm not throwing coffee under the bus at all. That is, that is just an easy example of a fundamental truth. We see this in any substance can, can induce this kind of resistance. So what are the foods that yep. you say are the prime offenders when it comes to pushing your insulin up? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's definitely the, the second part of this. So if, if chronically elevated insulin is a primary driver of insulin resistance, what is it that's causing the chronic insulin? And that is the incessant consumption of refined carbohydrates, where we have been told that we should eat, you know, five to six little meals per day. And we've been told that we should have the bulk of our calories coming from carbohydrates. That's a Can wonderful... You break I'm sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. there because Please. I think I know that there are good carbohydrates, mm -hmm. for example, those in beans and yeah. in vegetables. Could you just spell out what you mean when you talk about the carbohydrates that are bad? That's a great question. At its simplest, it is if a carbohydrate comes from a bag or a box with a barcode, it's one to be very, very careful with. So this is going to be cereal and bread, crackers, pasta. But fruits and vegetables or lentils, those you can eat at libitum. You can eat those freely. You almost can't eat too many. Now, you could theoretically eat far too many apples, you know, and because and, apples are kind of sugary. But for the most part, if it's fruits and vegetables and lentils, eat them, enjoy them liberally. There's no reason to scrutinize or control them in any, in any amount. However, it's the it's those refined carbohydrates, again, that come from bags and boxes with barcodes. If you are eating those, it goes a little something like this, where overnight, as you've been sleeping, insulin has finally come down. The body's becoming a little more insulin sensitive. We go into a higher state of fat burning, which is something I haven't touched on at all, how insulin controls the fuel we burn. Insulin's low. The body is in a higher fat burning state. And then what do we do, especially undergraduates? 
we eat a big sugary starchy breakfast because it's two bowls of cereal and it's a cup of orange juice. That's just pure sugar. And so we have our glucose levels that spike to remarkable levels. Insulin has to come up as well to try to protect the body from that glucose spike. And then about three hours later or so, it has crested and it's now coming down. And wouldn't you know it, now we're hungry for our mid-morning snack. And so we get another starchy or sugary snack or a sugary coffee. And once again, we've bumped the glucose and insulin back up. And right as it's about to come down, we have a big starchy lunch and then our afternoon snack and then dinner and evening snack. And so we are spending almost every waking moment and well into some sleeping moments in a state of elevated insulin. And that is driving insulin resistance. And it's preventing us from burning fat because when insulin's high, the body's in sugar burning mode, not fat burning mode. Ben, I have this discussion or I've had this discussion with my now 17 year old son for years. And he has dismissed me out of hand as being an extremist, crazy woman when I tell him that the cookies, the brownies, the Cheez-Its, the whatever, I say the sugar is poison. It is poisoning his body. He's like, Mom, you are whack. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, well, mom is not whack. Earlier, I'd mentioned that young teenagers and student undergraduates think they're metabolically immortal, but it always catches up. And these are foods that are in no way helpful for growth or good health. There is nothing from those Cheez-Its, the goldfish crackers, the bread or whatever that the body needs. There is zero biological need for carbohydrates in a human. Now, I'm not saying don't eat them. I'm not saying that. But strictly speaking, humans have a biological need for certain fats. We must eat them to survive. We have a biological need for certain proteins. We must eat them to survive. There is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. So we shouldn't let that be the basis of our diet. Not that we don't eat them, but for a growing, a young growing individual, I would just say we need to make sure our kids are eating fat and protein. What is the downside, though, of eating? let's say 40 teaspoons of yeah, sugar yeah. a day. Yeah. Yeah. So they will be probably have much more acne because of it, because bacteria and acne is a bacteria feed on glucose. That is the only fuel bacteria can use. Students might also have, this would be more of a problem to, for girls than boys, but much more urinary tract infections, because once again, bacteria feed on glucose. And if your glucose levels are always high, you're spilling it into your urine, feeding those bacteria. And then you might be driving some subtle problems that you're not seeing with your with the naked eye, which would be fatty liver disease. You can have young people with fatty liver disease because they're drinking so much juice or they are eating so much sugary junk food or starchy junk food. Because, you know, cheeses and crackers, they don't have a lot of sugar, but they have just pure flour and flour is immediately metabolized into glucose. And fatty liver disease is a consequential problem because it's a gateway problem for liver failure, ultimately. And in girls, you can have teenage girls who have polycystic ovary syndrome. And, and these are problems that are afflicting more and more young people. Not to mention, if, if they are eating a diet that is spiking their insulin all the time, while they're even younger, they could have precocious puberty, where a, a kid is gaining weight and that weight is driving their early physical and sexual maturation. 
known as precocious puberty, which has consequences that go beyond just the obvious. I could keep talking about this all day long, but I know our listeners want to learn more about what you do in your day job, or at least one of the day jobs that you have. Your title is associate professor and metabolic research scientist. What is a metabolic research scientist, Ben? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what? let me actually also mention this is a little outside your question, but uh, my rank currently is associate professor. And a lot of people don't know that there are ranks within academia. We just say I'm a professor. Most people aren't, although I will be next year. I'll probably get that last rank. But when, when a professor is first hired, professor is hired at the rank of assistant professor. Now, there's no practical difference between any of these ranks. You teach, you do research. It's just a rank. And then at the time a professor gets tenure, usually, and tenure is essentially you now have a guaranteed job. Now, there can be exceptions to that that would cause the professor to lose his or her job, but it's very, very rare. You almost have to try to lose your job at that point. Now, I actually don't love tenure. I don't think anyone should ever have a job they're not actively working to keep, but that's beside the point. At the time a professor, usually around six years, they will have the opportunity to advance to the rank of associate professor. At that same time, they will get tenure. And then about five to six years after that, where I am now, you will then put in an application of sorts to make that final advance to just full professor or just professor. Because that nuance of rank is, is not familiar to most people, we always just say professor. So that's, that's, that's kind of the nuance of academia. Now, to be a metabolic scientist is to simply have a focus on some biochemical process within a cell that is involved in the building up of molecules or the breakdown of molecules within the cell. And, and those two processes, anabolism and catabolism, both go into what is collectively just referred to as metabolism. My focus is essentially studying how insulin, the little modest humble hormone insulin, affects those reactions. And in general, insulin is attempting to constantly promote anabolism. It only wants the cell to build things. It never wants the cell to break things down. That's a problem. And that's a problem in a state of chronically elevated insulin because now you have a cell that's aging, it's getting older, faster, and you have fat cells that can never break down their fat to share it. So the body is prematurely aging and it's getting fatter. Oh boy. So can you take us into... Gosh, a typical day in the lab for you. Have you been able to get back into the lab? We're doing this interview in the middle of June of 2021. And what is it that you're in the process of researching right now? Yeah, yeah. So a day in the life uh, for me, it would depend on the time of year. Because it's summer and I'm not teaching right now, it's mostly just research and writing. And in the writing involves usually two things, writing manuscripts. So actually compiling all the data that we've put together and now writing the story that goes with it, the scientific story that we're now going to have it submitted for peer review at a scientific journal. And then hopefully at the end of it all, get accepted for publication. That's the currency of science. The currency certainly of a scientist. It is your productivity can be measured in what are you publishing? And then alternatively, you're also usually working on grants, always just trying to chase down a little more money to do the work that you want to do. Now, that is during summer balanced by some time in the lab where I'm in the lab with my students and we are doing ex experiments to measure 
how are mitochondria working? What is the metabolic rate of fat cells or muscle cells when we do different things to them? So in fact, I'll get precise there because you'd asked about certain projects. One of the big projects we have going on now is to study how ketones affect memory and learning and specifically how these ketones, these little molecules that, are, uh, that have a caloric value, they're nutrients that can flow in the blood when our insulin levels are a little lower. We're studying how ketones actually feed or fuel the, the cells in the hippocampus. The hippocampus is this teeny little section of the brain that is involved in memory and learning and cognition and thinking. So we're discovering more and more how ketones are not only a preferred fuel for the brain, but a better fuel. The brain has two fuels, glucose or ketones, and the brain does better when it has some ketones around. All the more reason to fast sometimes or to just control those carbohydrates to help your insulin stay low for a bit, and then you start making some ketones. Another project that we have is looking at how muscle cells can grow in response to these certain chemicals that kind of activate anabolic signaling or, or growth signaling within muscle cells. And this would potentially be a therapy in people who have muscle wasting problems, like with cancer. Of course, an obvious one would be for athletes because their muscles will get bigger, stronger. Oh, fascinating. So what do you think have been the most interesting discoveries that you've landed on through researching the ties between certain molecular mechanisms and how they affect metabolic disorders such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and dementia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd say two really neat discoveries that we've had over the past couple of years. The first one is our publication that details how insulin will directly act to slow the metabolic rate in fat cells. Fat cells have a metabolic rate. They are living, breathing cells. They have a life to them. And uh, although the metabolic rate is very low in fat cells, we found that insulin actually depresses the metabolic rate even lower. In contrast, ketones, which the body makes when insulin is low, actually accelerate the metabolic rate in fat cells by three times. So when we look at our own fat cells, we can kind of put them to work for us by controlling our diet to keep our insulin low and our ketones a little higher, and then we can accelerate the metabolic rate in our fat cells. So that was a neat paper we published. And that was neat because we involved cell data, rodent data from lab mice, and human data. We actually pulled fat biopsies from humans to measure the metabolic rate from little pieces of fat from human volunteers. Then the second study that I'll mention is the paper we published with regards to Alzheimer's and this was a very neat paper because it once again was human tissue. We had access to the hippocampus from people who had died. These were tissue donors or you know, cadaver donors of people who had died with and without Alzheimer's disease. And we found that the people who had Alzheimer's disease had brains that were fundamentally less capable of using glucose for energy. However, they were perfectly capable of using ketones for energy. And so another encouragement to give your body a break from all the incessant glucose and insulin, let the ketones come up. Because if someone is on the spectrum towards Alzheimer's disease, part of the problem is your brain is going hungry because it can't use glucose as well as it used to, probably because it's insulin resistant. And all the more reason to give it some ketones, which even the Alzheimer's brain can greedily gobble up and use for energy. So give your brain a break and let it use ketones. That's one of the takeaways from that other big paper we published. So I have a couple of mm. quick follow-ups. I think quick. 
how can we increase ketones in our body? You suggested fasting is one way, but is there another way that we can actually ingest ketones? And then the second point has to do with something you raised during our espresso shots interview. And that was the importance of being able to storytell, the importance of being able to write as a researcher and communicate verbally, because you can be producing the most amazing research in the world. But if you're not able to present it in a way that catches people's attention, you know, I don't want to say it's a waste of time, but it's going to be really hard to get it out there into the public sphere. Yeah. Yeah. So the first point about the production of ketones. So you, the body cannot make ketones unless insulin is low. And so the, the simplest way to do that is fasting, of course. It's the fastest way to do that. If you're not eating anything, your insulin will come down quickly and you'll make ketones quickly. Another way with dietary intervention is just to have a low carbohydrate diet or to avoid those big offenders of carbohydrates. Focus your carbs on vegetables, fruits, and lentils, and then make sure you're getting ample protein and fat because they have little to no effect on insulin. Now, to the other point you mentioned, because the benefits of ketones are getting more and more widely known, it's no surprise that people have leveraged on that fame. And now we have ketone supplements. These are referred to as exogenous ketones. Endogenous ketones are the ketones you're just making on your own, which is beneficial and, and prudent. But you can drink ketones as well to just accelerate that process. And, and these are ketone salts or ketone esters. And either of them work. The ketone ester is much more expensive, but it works much, much better. And I'm not a big advocate of people drinking ketones. My view is if you want ketones, then make your own by keeping your insulin down. Now, to your other point about having to convey information, I'm always quick to say that a good scientist is half scientist, half salesperson. You've got to sell people on the value of what you're doing, not only, of course, to get grant money, but even to just get interest in your topic. Now, it is my good fortune to study a topic that most people are naturally interested in, obesity and diabetes. But even still, there are a lot of other diabetes and obesity scientists that aren't sharing what they know. And that was part of, that was a very deliberate act on my part. About five years ago, I think that's right. About five years ago, I had reached a point of frustration in my career where I realized so much of what I'm learning is both so relevant People need to learn what I'm learning, but it's also so irrelevant in that no one ever will ever see it. I will publish this paper or I'll give a talk at a scientific meeting. And the only people who will ever read it or hear it is other scientists. And I railed against that because I thought we need to share what we're learning. We metabolic scientists. And that was when I first got engaged on social media. And it was then and is still now completely a tool of disseminating scientific information. It's never me posting pictures of me working out or out with my kids and, or, you know, whatever. It's only me sharing tidbits of science. I'm thrilled at how warm the response has been, but it is just reflective of this effort on my part to want to share information. And it's a fun challenge. I enjoy, even in my writing of, of scientific manuscripts, I don't like being bored. I like to find new clever turns of phrase. I like to find a new way of expressing an old idea because it can get boring using the same old science speak and all the same old vernacular. I like to mix it up a bit in my writing even, although it's a little drier, but then I can certainly get a little more colorful 
in my expression or, you know, these, these little tidbits that I do on say Instagram or similar, I like being able to convey that. And as you said, you have to have a bit of an entertainer aspect in you to do it well. Well, speaking of the de-wonkified writing that you've been doing, your book that came out in the summer of 2020 is just that. Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. Could you just give us the headlines? I recognize Mm -hmm. we have touched on this throughout the interview, but why do we get sick? Yeah. Yeah. That's a bold title, of course. Right. And that was deliberate on my part, because if I would have given it a more accurate title, like why insulin resistance matters, why you should care about it, no one would have ever taken it off the shelf because we see the word insulin and immediately think it's only relevant to a diabetic. We have no knowledge of how relevant it is to disease. In fact, that knowledge is so little that even most actual healthcare providers, most physicians and nurses have very little regard for insulin. And that there was kind of my focus. I wanted people to understand that insulin resistance is fundamental to virtually every chronic disease. It's either directly causing it as the main cause or it's making the disease worse. And this covers a massive spectrum of diseases. Insulin resistance is probably the single most relevant variable to Alzheimer's disease. It is the most relevant variable to heart disease, which is the number one killer. It's very relevant to the most common cancers, breast and prostate cancers. While it's not causing the cancer, it's accelerating the cancer. It's the most common cause of the most common infertilities, PCOS in women and erectile dysfunction in men. It's the most common cause of the most common liver problem, which is fatty liver disease and several other diseases. So the book was written because I wanted people to understand what insulin resistance is, how relevant it is or why it matters in all of these chronic diseases, where it comes from, why it's become so common, and then what to do about it. Kind of the happy ending of what is otherwise an entertaining horror story in a way. So that was that really was my motivation. I, I thought this is a message that too few people understand. I understand it. I'm beholden to share this with others. So glad you have. So what should our listeners be eating to prevent insulin resistance? Yeah, yeah. So especially for the young kids, it is prevention. And then for the older kids, it's reversing it, which is absolutely possible. So on the extreme end of insulin resistance, you have type 2 diabetes. This is when the insulin is working so poorly now in their body that they just can't keep their blood sugar in control anymore. Now the blood sugar goes up really high and now they have type 2 diabetes. Even type 2 can be totally reversed by changing lifestyle. It is a lifestyle problem. Insulin resistance is a dietary problem. So the pillars, I would say there are four. One, control your carbohydrates. I'm not saying you can't eat any, but if your carbohydrates have been coming from bags and boxes with barcodes, put them on the bench. Don't eat them or be very, very cautious with them. Focus more on fruits and vegetables, natural carbohydrates, the way nature would want you to take them. Second, make sure you're getting enough protein. So prioritize protein. I love alliteration. So control carbohydrates, prioritize protein. And there's a nuance here, which is a little unpopular nowadays, but I have to say it as a scientist, that protein should be coming from animal sources. I know that it is increasingly less popular to acknowledge that humans are omnivores at our very core and that we will die. If if a person adopts a completely vegan diet, 
they will die. That is not compatible with human survival. They have to be supplementing heavily in order to make up what they're now lacking. So prioritize protein and make sure this is coming from meat, eggs, meat and eggs and dairy. Third, in this, I would say grass fed. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, if you can. Yeah, now to a student, I'm always very sympathetic. And they say, well, thanks, Bickman. I can't afford that. And I say, you know what? Don't worry about it. You just get that protein. And then when you can, yeah, level it up. And then the third point is related to the second, which is don't fear fat. These best proteins in nature that I just mentioned will always come with fat and we should eat it that way. Egg white should come with egg yolk. Meat should come with fat and milk protein whey should come with milk fat, with dairy fat. We should get the protein with the fat. It helps the protein work better. We literally digest the protein better and fat and protein together are more anabolic at muscle than protein alone. So for these young college age kids, these guys, especially that are lifting and wanting to have very impressive physiques, if you're just taking a protein shake, you're wasting money. You need to get fat with your protein. So you're either adding protein or adding fat to it in the form of cream or ghee or butter, or you're getting a protein shake that has fat already in it. So don't fear fat. And then lastly, intermittent fasting. Don't feel like you need to eat every three hours or whatever. It's okay to take a break from food. And my advice is to control your eating on either side of the, either end of the day, either fast through breakfast And if you fast through breakfast, have a very big hearty lunch so that your dinner can be a little more modest, or you have a big hearty breakfast, a modest lunch, and an even more modest dinner, but give your body a break from eating incessantly. And from time to time, even do a 24-hour fast. Drink, you can even drink coffee, but don't add sugar to it. Try to control any calories coming in, but drink water, even coffee, but have a full 24-hour fast from time to time. You will be amazed at how good you feel, how lean and sharp you feel at the end of that. Fantastic. Have you heard of Dave Asprey? Yep. In fact, I was on his podcast about a month or two ago. Well, I also had the good fortune of interviewing him on Time for Coffee, and I'm guessing you guys totally geeked out on the value of fasting, the value of adding ghee, because Fast This Way, his book is... (laughs) all about that. I would say just in terms of when it comes to the dairy piece, there are others out there whom I'm sure you've also heard of, Dr. Mark Hyman and others who are in the integrative functional medical health space who would say, try to reduce, if not eliminate the dairy because it's also inflammatory. But just to provide another perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't say that, but it's not a sentiment I disagree with. Everybody has some sensitivities to certain foods. Dairy can be one of those culprits. It's up there with wheat, where that's one of the more common sensitivities. So if someone suspects they have any kind of sensitivity at all, then absolutely dairy is something you, could, you should control. But I don't like to say it's inherently pro-inflammatory because I'm not compelled by any data that would suggest for the average person that it is. They drink dairy, for example, you don't see an increase in cytokines in their blood in the average individual. So to me, I would say, well, that's maybe inflammatory, but not. If you have a sensitivity to it, then it is inflammatory. That's awesome because I love Jenny's ice cream, which does have sugar in it. So I would minimize that. No, but listen, though, ice cream is one of my scheduled indulgences. 
I deliberately work ice cream into my diet. It's very, I'm very prudent with it. It's very deliberate. It has a beginning point and an end point. It's a finite amount because it's, of course, one little pint. But ice cream is my absolute weakness. We all have them. So very quickly, Ben, let's flash back to when you were in college. You went to Brigham Young University where you got a Bachelor of Science in exercise science. Mm -hmm. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Oh, my heavens. This is such a long answer. And I I give such long answers all the time. So I'm going to really make it brief. That was an early life crisis for me. I was nearing the end of my degree. Now, I started my degree a little later. I was 21 when I started my undergraduate because I'd spent two years as a missionary for my church in in Russia. So I got a late start, which I, I don't begrudge because it meant I was, frankly, a lot more mature than the average undergraduate. And that's not my ego speaking. When you've seen such an remarkable, diverse and an economically poor area like I did in Russia in the mid 90s. It changes the way you look at life and it changes the way you view your own actions. So I started school as a 21 year old. I was married because I knew I wanted to be a family man very much. And I I, I was married at the end, nearing the final year of my undergraduate degree. And I was looking at my, my degree in exercise science and asking myself, what on earth am I going to do with this degree? It's not one of those particularly practical degrees like accounting or engineering or nursing, which I hope my kids will go into. It's a degree where it's a bit vague and that worried me profoundly. And it became a matter of, well, for me, a lot of praying because I'm very religious, but maybe for lack of a better word, reflection and meditation. I was very thoughtful and pleading almost in seeking some kind of insight. And I was sitting in a class and looking at my professor and the professor had said that day, I can't stick around after class to answer questions because I have to rush home. And this was like at two o'clock in the afternoon. So I have to get home because I need to, I'm coaching my boys soccer game and they have an early game today or something like that. And that just struck me. And I thought, what is the purpose of my future career? To me, it was to provide for my family. That is why I do what I do. Now, there are numerous ways to provide for a family. But I knew that my wife and I had embraced a very traditional kind of role. I was be the breadwinner and she'd be the homemaker. The latter being a much harder and often thankless job, frankly. So I make sure to be very expressive in my gratitude to her. I knew that I would have that primary role of breadwinner. That was remarkable stress on me, that anticipation. And so that impression, that moment, I see my professor and he mentions this. And I thought, man, he's got it well balanced. This is a good job. It's a very stable job. And you have a huge amount of freedom. And so I thought, I want to look into being a professor. And at the same time, I was taking an incredible class in endocrinology. And it was fascinating to me. And the professor, I learned, was an active scientist. He was actively publishing research. And when I learned that, when he mentioned that in class, it blew my mind because I didn't know there were still scientists studying the body. I thought in the mid-90s, or this, by this point, it was early 2000s, I thought we already know everything there is to know about the human body. It never even entered my mind that people are still studying the human body. And I thought, I want to do that. And so I immediately contacted this professor that I'd just finished his class. And I said, look, I want to get a graduate degree. Please give me some instruction. He said, well, you don't really know what you want to do yet. So don't jump into a PhD, get a master's degree. 
I look at a master's degree then and still do as kind of a holdover in the sciences. It's not enough for you to make a career out of necessarily in academia, certainly. And, and, and it's okay to be a little wonder, curious still in, in wondering what you want to actually focus on for your PhD. So I just rolled into a master's degree right here at BYU. It was comfortable and I knew that scientist already. And so I just worked my way into his lab. And that was very rushed. I took the GRE that weekend and, and just got right into the program, thankfully. And then I was very thoughtful about what I want to do with my PhD. And that was the beginning, what has already become a long story, make it a little shorter. That was the beginning of my focus on fat cells and insulin resistance and how inflammation even specifically plays into that. And these are all topics I've continued now. So I got my PhD in bioenergetics, which is kind of the biochemistry of metabolism at a very good school, East Carolina University, ECU. I would say if any student is interested in ECU or this field, ECU is an incredible program at a very quiet university. You'd never know it. But anyone in the realm of obesity and diabetes knows ECU. So I'm very grateful that I was able to go there. And I had my dissertation work was with a wonderful scientist who was so kind and so supportive. And then after the PhD is an, an often unspoken aspect, which is a postdoctoral fellowship. This is something students need to hear because I didn't know about it until I'd started my PhD, which is that if you want to be a PI or a scientist, you need to do a fellowship at the end of your PhD. I did my postdoctoral work with Duke University, but it was the Duke campus that is located in Singapore, this beautiful tropical island, very well developed, very beautiful. So I moved my beautiful wife and our little baby to Singapore, which was nerve wracking. You know, I'm here I am taking my wife and our little family around the world. And we lived there for about three years and it was incredible. We loved it. It was magical there. We had our second daughter was born there. And then at that time, BYU came knocking. My old alma mater said, hey, we have an open spot. We would love to bring you back to study diabetes and obesity. And we had such an affection for BYU. My wife is from Utah. And so it was comfortable, familiar stomping grounds. And so we moved back here 10 years ago and we've been here ever since. How fantastic. Well, you see the pieces have fallen into place. Yeah. Now, you know what, though? Let, let me just say to those students, and it's almost like I can see my own students um, as the audience here. You are in that decade of decision and these decisions matter. And so you should be thoughtful about them and talk to people about these decisions. Talk to your professors, talk to people in the field you're interested in going into. Don't try to figure this out on your own. That was my biggest problem where I was having my early life crisis and to varying degrees, I think many students will or do, I tried to keep that burden on my own shoulders and I ought to have earlier sought insight from people. So be liberal in reaching out to individuals either on your campus or outside of it in the, in the field you wanna work in. Don't try to just figure it all out on your own. And if you don't know what field you want to go into, and maybe even if you do, I would be honored if you would follow me on LinkedIn, because that is what I do. Try to help young college students who are confused figure it out. Two final questions for you, Ben. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled and maybe that was it when you were still a student, but perhaps as a professional at the bench, maybe you failed or flopped, which scientists do over and over again. And most important here, how you persevered 
and if there was a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Yeah, yeah. So there are countless, there are countless little failures. That is the nature of science. Constantly trying to prove a theory false. Sometimes you prove it false, frankly, and you get a little bummed. You get disappointed or or the experiments just don't work. That certainly has happened. So maybe the biggest crisis happened when I started my PhD. I actually started it at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and it ended up being a terrible experience. And at the end of that, the individual in whose lab I was working essentially told me, hey, you're not cut out for science. You need to just quit. It was very direct and very disheartening because I'd never been told I was a failure. I'd never encountered that kind of defeat. It was a very scary moment for me, but I refused to be deterred. I had an inherent appreciation of my value and being married honestly helped that actually. And I was able to take that sentiment and scrutinize it and ask what is true about this sentiment and what is not true. And I simply rolled into another graduate program at ECU and it couldn't be happier that it worked out the way it did. But that was an opportunity to just leave the field and say, all right, fine, I'm not cut out for it. But I knew that I was. And, and so I, I, I guess the lesson there and my encouragement is if you've got that conviction and confidence and you have to have that confidence in your capability, then don't be deterred. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Final question. If you could go back to university, back to BYU, which is where you are, but as a student and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have right now, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's a great question. You know what? I would say it'll all work out because I was so scared. I was so uncertain. And really, I wouldn't for a million dollars go back to that kind of uncertainty. And I had no idea of how well it would work out professionally because I do love my job. I love that I study something that people care about. I love that I have a, a way of sharing that information with people. And I couldn't imagine doing what I'm doing now back then, you know, 25 years ago. My only advice, it's not really advice. It would have just been encouragement, which is it, it'll all work out. What a wonderful note on which to end. Dr. Benjamin Bickman is the author of the book, Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease. He is also the co-founder of Insulin HQ, a coaching service designed to help reverse type 2 diabetes and other chronic diseases. And he's also the co-founder of another company called Health Code, which sells nutritionally complete shakes. We will have links to all of the above in show notes. We didn't even get into how he became a co-founder of these companies, but it just goes to show you. You cannot predict where and how your professional life is going to continue to evolve. And perhaps we can have you back, Ben, to talk about oh, sure. the companies at some point. I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. 
And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the Coaching tab at time, the number 4, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.